0: Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Hello, welcome. Welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only podcast, History of the Devil. I'm Klaus Yoder, and with me, as always, is my partner in heresy travis stevens travis how are you doing today
1: i am very excited that we're talking about pseudodinesias i will confess that it's possible in grad school i overheard someone talking about this particular author and referring to him as p diddy um, which i will not be doing during mm. this podcast
0: uh, yeah a disavowal yeah we're gonna have to unsay, we're gonna have to unsay or unname that we name. will
1: be yeah. un- unsaying uh, that particular claim thank you
0: We'll we'll talk about the the P part of that for a second. Pseudo Dionysius, uh, like pseudo is not his first name. You know, it means, Uh, I'm I'm sure people understand like false. So it's it's pointing to uh, a pseudonym. And where does this pseudonym come from, Travis? Well,
1: he is writing in the name of a really, really, really minor character in the book of Acts. So after Paul... um, Tries to you know round up some more disciples of Jesus, um, saying that they he found a statue and that they're worshiping uh, an unknown god. He's like, guess what? I know exactly who that god is, and it's Jesus. Um, and right. this seemed super convincing to uh, some. Some folks, in
0: like three people, to, <laughs>
1: exactly, and and a number of others, it says in the text, but no one believes uh-huh. them. Um, uh, so yeah, uh. but one of those people was called Dionysius the Areopagite, um, which sounds like a totally fine name, but basically, to write in that name, you're claiming what we might call sub-apostolic authority. If Paul is an apostle hmm. in his own very weird way, um, <laughs> then that means that. This guy is just one layer below that. Like this is not from someone who knew Jesus, but from someone who knew someone who knew Jesus, which is like pretty close if you think about it, right? And
0: like and like Paul like sort like Paul had a a vision of Jesus appear in various like like Paul is not like there with Jesus in the gospels, but like Paul like claims some sort of spiritual intimacy with Jesus. So it's even a little bit even more mediated in some way, or less mediated, depending on how you look at it.
1: As Mariah Carey once sang Paul had a vision of love Um, and only it was of Jesus. So anyway, that's how, yeah. So it's like a weird version of apostle. Thanks for pointing that out. So, but these writings from this guy didn't actually show up until maybe the early sixth century. So (laughs) clue number one, that maybe this wasn't actually as old as it claims to be. Um, What else?
0: One thing about the name mm-hmm. the 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 the, Pseudo-Denisius, the Areopagite like Areopagite makes it sound like he's part of like a superhero task force like or something like it's like really impressive uh, apparently it's a kind of Athenian judicial council so some sort of legal professional or like athenian politician or civil servant so that's sort of interesting wow uh inroads being made into the bureaucracy there by paul good job
1: love that love that and we're definitely going to get into hierarchies uh later today so super excited that you brought that in um the other thing i just want to mention briefly um that there's a substantial debt here in this corpus to neoplatonism um, and especially to proclus so yay how convenient that we've talked a little bit about Proclus in our last episode. We, there
0: was, there was a there was a reason for it apparently.
1: Apparently we did that for a reason. But uh yeah, um the the corpus contains, I should probably mention, the divine names, the mystical theology, the celestial hierarchies and the ecclesia ecclesiastical hierarchies is that how it's written or ecclesial. Yeah. It's ecclesiastical, yeah. right? Yeah.
0: Ecclesiastical, I believe. Yes, it is. Okay, cool. Ecclesiastical.
1: Perfect. So um, that is what we call the the corpus uh, of this. It's not very
0: long either. It fits in one 200-page book or something like that. Yeah.
1: Is it a good read, Klaus? What would you say? I love parts of it, but really only in the context of a grad school class where we're talking about the cool parts, because otherwise it's a little... It can get, he gets a little bogged down. I'm going to say it. I'm just going to say it. I would say the mystical theology is perhaps the most readable. It's very short. Uh, what are your thoughts, Klaus?
0: Yeah, that one's pretty mind-blowing. So it's like, it's most readable and it's short, but it still is like, yeah, just totally psychedelic. Yeah, I mean, I I think like you, was excited to read it in certain discussions. And the probably the biggest thing to take away from it is the idea of apophatic or negative theology, which is developed in the mystical theology. And you get it to a certain degree in the divine names too. But the basic idea being that, and this goes back to sort of some of the mystical and metaphysical principles of the Cappadocian fathers, the people who sort of gave us Trinitarianism, that, that God's unknowable and that human language can't actually map onto the divine reality in any kind of direct correspondence and so there's like this ontological gap between divinity and humanity and what and and by extension human comprehension of the divine and so what this does is it sort of gives you some interesting possibilities with language for recognizing a kind of poetic but also a very kind of finite humanly determined character of language and using the limits of language for different interpretive projects and so like you you look at the text of the scripture like origin like agrivenessa and the literal meaning of the scripture is sort of just the surface the icy surface of a very deep glacial pond and there's like depths to this that you can't get at just by looking at the surface and i think like that's some of the the most exciting stuff you get from from pseudodionysius uh, it can also sort of be obscurantist and maybe there's sort of Uh, negative authoritarian tendencies that might be (laughs) be hidden in there too um especially in in the the ideas about hierarchy and you were you pointed out something about this corpus that was really important about the origins of this word hierarchy
1: yeah apparently this is the first time that this word appears in literature of any kind so it appears to be some sort of neologism here hierarchy serves you know, in the titles of two of the sections or the titles that we use to refer to two of the sections, the celestial hierarchy and the ecclesiastical hierarchy, you can already see that the Dionysian cosmos is highly structured through ra- ranks of angels on the one hand and then um, ranks of human beings, I suppose it's it's fair to say, not so much in terms of governance, but in terms of function, uh, ranks of human beings through the church. So you can think of the church with its bishops and priests, etc., as uh, an extension of the
0: ranks of the angels.
1: <laughs> Although they're Yeah,
0: f- and that's and that, that that works with the word too because hierarchy it's like it's like the rule of a high priest, it's the rule of the sacred and so it's a kind of authority structure built around sacred things and sacred people.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. And as we'll see in the corpus, the way that the it's also the hierarchies are also kind of pathways through which the divine moves. So it's it's a dynamic kind of structure. It's fixed in a certain way, but it's characterized by a movement of the divine through all of creation, celestial and. Uh, terrestrial if you will um uh, enacted through sacraments etc on the earth and through symbols of sacred reading that we that can raise us up to new heights but that's yeah it's heady stuff (laughs) in other words
0: it's very heady it's very heady and it's so heady that for a long time many christians uh took it on faith that the person who wrote these like very profound treatises was in fact the scriptural character of Dionysius the Areopagite and it wasn't there and and I think there were there were doubts along the way at certain moments it wasn't until the humanistic critical study of text that sort of started to begin in the 16th century that people real that skepticism really started to become dominant about the identity of this author like it it, it seemed Unlikely that this person who spoke with the vocabulary of a 6th or 5th century Neoplatonist philosopher was this 1st century convert. That there was just too much that mapped onto especially the the writings of Proclus, which came centuries after the historical Dionysius, for it to really match up and, and hold water. So we've been reading this uh, handy collected volume, Neoplatonic Angels and Demons, edited by Brisson, and the last essay in it is by Marilena Vlad, and it brings Pseudo-Dionysius into the picture. And she shows how, as I mentioned before, there's this abiding influence of the Neoplatonist philosopher Proclus from the 5th century, who was also, as, as we mentioned, a big influence on Boethius's work. So yeah, this, these episodes they're they're hanging together. It's great, right? And the account of evil you get in both Boethius and Studenicius owes a lot to Proclus in terms of the primitive account of evil, and so on and so forth. But a big difference between the Neoplatonist pagan Proclus and the ostensibly Christian pseudo is how the sort of most transcendent agent, the one in the case of Proclus and the Trinity in the case of Dionysius is like operating across all creation. And the reason this is different is that Proclus is trying to keep the one pure and removed from the multiplicity and plurality of beings because of its sort of, its primacy. It's like beyond being, it's before being. And Pseudo-Dionysius, on the other hand, is very interested in showing how the Christian godhead is moving and operating and coordinating in, in very direct contact through all of creation.
1: Yeah, I just want to note first of all that that book that we've been using that's so helpful, Neoplatonic Angels and Demons, is a um, it's fanfic um, and it's the sequel to Dan Brown's famous book Angels and
0: Demons. So you should definitely look at it up. <laughs> didn't even think about that. <laughs> that's so perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's that's so perfect. Um, I love that. Yeah, right. It, yeah, academic uh, Dan Brown fanfic. When Dan Brown himself is yeah. a fake a fake academic right or his character his main character his tom hanks character is a fake academic. well he's a Perfect symbologist
1: character. which is definitely a, like a real thing like symbology is that
0: sounds like something pseudo dionysius would claim as himself <laughs> you know it's like it's a the s- symbolic theology is one oh. of his one of his fake books he refers to oh my god is always referring yes. to books that don't exist that he wrote like like clout demon style like he's just like claiming all this stuff anyway um, really funny thank you for bringing that up i
1: would also like to dumb things down a little bit by suggesting that another key difference between Proclus and Pseudo dionysius is christianity
0: um so just as a reminder not all that's that's kind of what i was trying to say but yeah that, that kind of does that does get at it um that does get at it for sure i mean yeah and so
1: a lot of the commitments but but to not just not just state the obvious so um Pseudo Dionysius's commitments to Christianity tie him in to certain philosophical claims, which require him to be at odds with Proclus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so you see him in of Vlad's article that's particularly about the um, his corpus from this volume that we've been reading. There, there is a tendency to kind of collapse um, Dionysius's claims down to philosophical. Um, assertions and then compare them mm-hmm. to Proclus in a way that often leaves out all the scriptural citations <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to make yeah. the comparison yeah. easier and more yeah. and, and make yeah. kind of more sense like oh well how do we kind of close how do we view these two thinkers in a more textured way you want to kind of line them up in that way so it's very helpful but I think sometimes obscures if you're sort of in the weeds like that that this primary difference between them uh, or some of the mo- yeah. motivations yeah. behind why he must claim um, something different about the heinads, for example, which we're going to get into next, right?
0: Yeah, and I think some some scholars hypothesize that Pseudo Dionysius was in fact a direct student of Proclus, which I think is is an interesting claim. There's, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, we only have the pseudonym; we don't actually know much, if anything, about. You know, scholars have debated who this could have been. It's none of it's ultimately satisfying, but. It is interesting to me that as we saw with Origen and Plotinus that you can have like even you even if these are sort of rival uh, schools of thought between Neoplatonism and Christianity you can have a lot of contact and the idea that Studenicius was a Proclus student like sort of that would fit with that and 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 yeah yes, anyway and- you mentioned the, you mentioned the Henads uh, so like the, the important thing is, as I mentioned, like this is the Christian part is like in Christ, in scripture, you see like God is present as Jesus for Christians or God is listening to the calls of the children of Israel at various moments. Like there's a, there's a, 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 a direct relationship in many ways. And like for Proclus, by contrast, the one, the source of everything is above being, but ha- the, there are these middle, you know, Beings Like as we talked about a few episodes ago, like for Neoplatonism, you have this really transcendent, distant one. And so when you have something that's so untouchable, the need for middlemen really becomes acute. And so the henads or the gods are what function as this middle point in Proclus's thought. And the way, what they do is they cause the diversity and they manage the diversity of the modes of being like they're the person, they're the people who sort of like allow for different ways of being taking shape. So some ways this diversity is being worked out is through further emanations. And those are things like the intellect, like the intellect as principle or the soul as principle. And this is important for the comparison that you were referring to, because for Vlad, The Henads who are doing that kind of cosmological, metaphysical sorting and and arranging are the analog for what the angels are doing for Pseudo-Dionysius. The other key, one of the ways to make sense of the difference between the Henads and the angels is the Henads, according to Vlad, are self-constituting, which means they are free agents. They're not causally determined by the one they emanate from the one but the one is not like pulling the strings like some puppet master and their presence in the system is like this great way to make room for the gods of classical greco-roman polytheism it's like the way of sort of rehabilitating those the olympian gods and so forth the idea of them being self-constituting means that they are fundamentally self-knowing and this is really different in in Pseudo Dionysius, like the angels aren't so interested in knowing themselves. What they're interested in is knowing God. Like they're, everything's oriented towards the knowledge of God. And the key metaphor for all this is light. And the angels are like this whole elaborate system of mirrors and lenses that are refracting and reflecting and redirecting the original light that's flowing from God. And so they're not looking inward they're just a surface that's sort of redirecting this this sort of primary dawn of divine light. And it, to me, I, I, say, I think of this when I read this, like this is especially in this, like the celestial hierarchies, all this light mirror lens imagery, it's like this giant futurist mirror sculpture that I, that I imagine when, when I think of it.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a lovely way to think about it. Um, I wanna note that, for, because we'll come back to this a bit later, that the hierarchy the way that the hierarchy reflects that light on downward involves a kind of active reception and so we will return to that idea later it's not um automatic as it were um and the other thing yeah 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 that's important um and the other thing to note is that Self-knowledge might be understood in the system to be constituted through the action of receiving and transmitting the light. It is through that, that one comes to know oneself. But the point, as you so well described, is not self-knowledge. That's incidental or secondary to -hmm. knowledge of God, which is the focus of angelic and, you know, uh, human holy activity as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. Yeah, it's not like you're not supposed to know yourself. It's just like, it's not the main, it's not the main point. I think that's, that's, that's important. We mentioned this word that's really vital for pseudo Dionysius that apparently he coined, which is hierarchy. We talk about the hierarchies or hierarchies a lot in the humanities and social sciences. We're looking at that, the way that works socially and politically. It's usually a word with a negative connotation, which is definitely not what pseudo Dionysius held it to be, have. Uh, he defines hierarchy this way. It's a sacred order, a state of understanding and an activity approximating as closely as possible to the divine. And it is uplifted to the imitation of God in proportion to the enlightenments divinely given to it. So divine light is reaching out to all beings to grant them some share of this light. But hierarchy is as much about bringing everything in conformity and contact and granting return to the primal source as it is in keeping things divided and in their proper place and that's like kind of a interesting tension um he he writes further that it ensures that the hierarchy ensures that when members have received this full divine splendor they can then pass on this light generously and in accordance with god's will to beings further down the scale so yeah like that's that seems like an important point that. Inferiors are uplifted and purified and drawn towards the source and they acquire their due share of purification, illumination and perfection. Mm -hmm. According Um, to
1: their ability, he'll say often.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I, I, and I I have this in in that too, but yeah, like this, there's this constant refrain and I understand this is kind of a a Neoplatonic idea, but like the idea that everyone has a certain, if you have like, intellect i suppose though maybe even sometimes it seems more radical like that's it, not even a precondition but like if you have an intellect if you're a reasoning being you have a certain ability to be able to be drawn back towards the divine source and and uh so we have i don't know what do you make of this in terms of like attention like between everything has its right place in a hierarchy and yet we're all trying to be lifted up like what do you make of that kind of <laughs> that tension that there is, that behind that, there's a desire
1: on the part of Pseudogenesius in his Christian commitments to find a unity through all creation that requires a kind of path to the one. Um, And he's trying to create that while acknowledging that there are different roles that everyone has, but this kind of sense of unity at the same time. I think I'm thinking of um, Paul's metaphor of many members and one body here. I think that's Mm -hmm. very much the idea that he's trying to get across, That's you cannot get around in Christianity, even if you're working with all this interesting Neoplatonic material as well, that you, it would be hard to not give everyone some shared project with respect to god and so that's i think what, yeah. what what's going on from my yeah. perspective um fun fact getting back to the hierarchy just briefly um as you know klaus i work on a, on the staff of a bishop and <laughs> the other day there was this incident where someone used the word hierarch to refer to him and they used it doubly so on the one hand they meant Um, a bishop it is a word that you can use to describe a bishop it's a very rare word in our tradition (laughs) but someone used that um to kind of also suggest that um there's a power behind that as well you know you're Mm -hmm. part of the hierarchy in the bad sense um and so uh that was a fun moment for me thinking about um the relationship between what is supposed to be and the kind of Uh, double meaning of the word in our contemporary society trying to be aware of power structures and how they can be used for ill as well
0: yeah and i think that's mostly how we talk about it even though we all participate in them willingly or or you know in some cases willingly in some cases just by default and it's so it's so funny just to see someone just being like hierarchy it's the best (laughs) right (laughs) hierarchies rule (laughs) literally they rule so they, yeah, they're really exactly right. They're the beginnings. They're the, you know, they're the beginnings and they're the ruling principle. What's so funny is like um, when pseudo Dionysius is sort of going through this, he almost has like this kind of, I would almost say pseudo naive side where it's like, it would be horrible if anyone in this hierarchy were ever to do anything or even to exist against the secret orderings of him, that is God. It's like, well, it's a little bit, you know. well, This is the Devil podcast, but it's like, didn't that happen already, my man? Like, come on. Love that. <laughs> it would be horrible. Wouldn't that um, be the it, worst? But that, but that almost makes it seem like he's writing about it as if it were like this kind of system that's like in a delicate balance, but like hasn't fallen apart yet. And you're like. Where, like, where are we in the timeline here? But I, that just struck me as funny. It's like, well, it, it ha- that horrible thing has come to pass. Like that's, you know, that's, the, that, you know, <laughs> that's like sort of the Christian salvation story part. of
1: I, I would wonder though, if it's about a reorientation, right? Because we don't have hierarchy before in the same way until pseudo Dionysius, And so to talk about what it means to sin or to fall is a different thing now he is saying that it's, wouldn't it be bad? And yeah, the tense is really funny here, but I think it's a different thing to sin against order than it is to sin against, you know, God in a more, you know, um, biblical sense, perhaps this seems like a different thing. I'm not sure what that shakes out to be, except like it's a, it's a sin against the order that is also constitutive of a kind of unity. Um, And so it's kind of a, even if an angel's sin seems to us to be an individual act and a sin against God, it also implicates everything else in a different way. When you have such an ordered cosmos, I'm just going off yeah. here, so you know, bear yeah. with me. But that's my thought.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I I think I think I hear what you're saying. I do I do think though that this is the thing. And this is we haven't said this, but like there isn't really a detailed account of satan's fall Mm -hmm. like you'll tell us a little bit more about like the the the, he talks about the fall of the demons like kind of in a general way but there isn't like a historical description of the fall of the devil right in this corpus um so that's sort of like i think also reflects the kind of almost stasis of the hierarchy or it's precarious balance that he's aware of here and the fact that like if the fall of the devil does happen in a kind of conventional way which I don't know. Maybe he would deny. Which we're not. We're not clear. Uh, it would be like it would represent a disruption of the hierarchy, as you were saying. It's not just like one person's like bad decision. It's like a, a sort of structural failure in some way. And we'll, we'll get in. We'll get into it. Soon. So uh, obviously, uh, something we come back to a lot on this, this program is freedom, America, freedom, that kind of thing. Um, and guns, uh, guns, Pseudo- guns, is guns. What yeah, we're really here totally to talk it, about. Yeah. That's what. That's you know, guns, God, and mm-hmm. grits or whatever the fuck. I don't know. Um, Pseudo Dionysius doesn't have the same resources as Proclus and other Neoplatonists for resisting total determinism. They're, they're, they're into like the, the, um, and, and, and so on and so forth, souls having, having freedom. But like, you'd think with what we're talking about here, pseudo is God is flowing through the ranks of creation. And so like, how do you avoid making everything that happens the responsibility of God? Like the, the old, the old trap of freedom that we've been talking about for, for years now. So how does he account for freedom with this all-powerful God running around and messing with stuff and causing everything? Um, Because the idea, you know, this is, as you were saying, Christian commitments, biblical commitments, like uh, an account of of creation. Like everything that you have and you are was given to you, including your ability to choose. And so it Mm -hmm. it becomes like a little bit like how, where is the free part again here (laughs) if everything... Every like condition for you being able to make a choice is, is conditioned by someone else. And one way he tries to deal with this, according to Vlad, is um, divine grace is a gift that gives the disposition to give itself. It's the gift of generosity, which makes it sound like a Hallmark card. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a disposition to, to give. It's also a disposition to receive the gift disposition to to as you were saying i think like not just be a passive determined um cog in a machine but someone who is welcoming and is using and and sort of cooperating on some level so the gift that you receive in this account is the eternal desire to find the good and to bestow goodness on on others uh there has to be a dynamic there in this account they You know, the angels in this case don't desire any particular thing through this gift of God, but they desire the desire for the good. They desire the desire for God. There has to be some work that they put into it themselves. And um, this is an idea that you see across the tradition, this gift of unlimited desire. It's called in Greek, epictasis. It's really important when, say, Gregory of Nyssa does a, a, a... a kind of mystical reading of Moses on the mountain, moving upward to receive the, the, the 10 commandments and so on and so forth. So that's what people get from God. It isn't like just in addition to our faculties and bodies and everything. Like it's, it's this desire to, 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 to find the good. It isn't just a static reception of the good itself. I would say, does that make sense?
1: Yes. It is a point that I think needs to be, nuanced a little bit um and a point where i might disagree with vlad slightly i think it's okay to think of the gift as generosity as the the capacity for gift giving and receiving ex- as long as we include the caveat that it's a gift that can be refused in a certain sense it cannot be completely refused as we will see but it, it's critical that, because it, what, so I think if you talk about um, the gift being desire for the one, or for desire for goodness, or the capacity for, I think that the desire for, the desire of the, of the good, that kind of meta way of phrasing things, can make it seem like it, we've lost freedom, <laughs> to put it bluntly. And that can't work for his system, as we will see a little bit further. But yeah, as long as we say that, I think I'm good with it. So yeah, like a lot of, as
0: I mentioned, there's like, there isn't a lot dedicated to demons and the devil in this corpus. And I think in almost true negative theological fashion, like we're like, I think that what Dionysius doesn't say about the devil and the demons is interesting and important and is actually, <clears throat> is actually suggestive. So like, maybe we can pivot a little bit to what he does say, you know, like we're going to, you know, like we're setting it up a little bit here, but there are some moments where he does start to show his cards a little bit about evil and demons and everything wrong with the universe. So Travis, let's, let's, let's dive right on to that muddy puddle of demons.
1: Oh boy. I'm very excited to go diving. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about the divine names, which is one of the four parts of the corpus, the corpus of our good friend pseudo Dionysius. So the divine names treats the scriptural names that our author finds all over the Bible for God. And I would say that this is, what counts as a name is really broad. So you might think of things like the Lord or (laughs) Jesus Christ, as potential divine names, right? Those are good candidates, right? Um, But he finds- Proper names, yeah. Yeah, proper names, you know, that's one way of doing this kind of procedure. Um, And he finds some really weird ones. So just to give you one example, um, and it's really important to his theology that these are unsuitable names, as I, I think he sometimes calls them. So he includes not just the sort of obvious ones, light, goodness, wisdom, but also things like worm. That's right, like the small creature, the wor- a worm. Okay, so where does that come from? Well, Jesus on the cross uh, in one of the gospels quotes Psalm 22, but just one verse saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me famously? But he does not go on to say, I am a worm and no man. Like I am less than a man. I'm just a little worm, uh, which is part of the psalm. But for pseudo the whole psalm counts as Jesus's speech, <laughs> sort of mm-hmm. by metonymy, right? So we have these very seemingly inappropriate names for God. Why is he going there? Um, well, stay tuned, because it all, it's all going to come together. You can think of this, though, as a kind of, on the other hand, as a kind of textualist, almost conservative move. What are the names Mm. for God? Let's look all of them up and make a list. Um, A little bit of a Bible thumper here, right? Uh, In a certain sense, even if he's doing it with a really broad definition of what counts as a divine name. So why is he doing all of this? Eventually he's gonna reveal in the mystical theology, another section of his writings, that one is meant to recite all of these names. there's a procedure that you're supposed to do, um, affirming the names first and then denying all of the names, sort of unsaying, if you will, all of the names that you find, that he finds for God. And that's supposed to do something interesting to you. It's supposed to suggest, I think, first and foremost, as Klaus has already pointed out, that God's being, uh, all attributes of God really, are beyond language's ability to describe, and furthermore beyond our, our ability to contemplate, and yet our role is to attempt that act of contemplation, and so one way to do that is through these divine names. Okay, I think I have gone into enough of that. <laughs> You do this in a particular order, though. So, when you affirm the names of God, you start with the easy ones um, for for affirmation. So, what is what are some easy Mm -hmm. names to affirm for God? Wisdom. That's pretty easy. Light, and you know this all kind of fits in with a kind of orthodox theology. Uh, It's harder to affirm names for God like drunkenness or worm. So you end with those, because you have to kind of warm up. It's like flexing a muscle, right? This is an exercise. So you start with the affirmations. I have to warm up. You got to warm up, Klaus. <laughs> you can't just jump in there and do the heavy lifting, right? So warm up first. It's so
0: funny, though, that we can't... It's so hard to hear the difference between the word warm and worm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, worm up.
1: <laughs> worm as in wormhole um, yeah. for our sci-fi fans. So then you proceed with the... Denials, The unsaying, the apophasis, the the, uh, apophatic theology part is where you say the denial. So you unsay everything that you just said, but you do it also in a particular order, starting with the easy ones. But the easy ones for denial are, of course, the opposite of the easy ones for affirmation. So, for example, Mm. God is not a worm. Pretty easy, right? Uh, So you start there. God is not drunkenness. Cool, cool. This is all fine. God is not light. Oh, that's weird. Uh, God is not good that is very weird. God is not being. God does not exist. That's really Mm. hard. And so, you know, predictably, some 20th century French authors got very excited about (laughs) parts of this. Um, But I think to excerpt that from the rest of the procedure, these denials, like God does not exist, um, is not actually what our author is going for in any way, shape, or form. So we're not seeing like a crypto atheism, but instead a suggestion that contemplation involves a kind of uh, exercise of stretching your mind and reminding yourself that you cannot conceive of the object of your contemplation. Your little itty bitty mind needs to break in order for this to work at all. Mm -hmm. Thoughts, Klaus, on any of that?
0: Yeah, I I mean, I think uh, one thing that, occurred to me was that the there's a kind of negative move that has to work through this and as you say like a lot of people like that part and i was wondering what the negative move the denials have to do with the negativity of of evil like the sort of metaphysical account of evil from the neoplatonists is privative so it's like evil as as being as non-being and I, i had like this this moment where i was like oh like what what does unsaying these names have to do with the, the unbeing of evil? And I was, uh, I was uh, uh, momentarily scandalized and then moved on with my life.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Okay. Yes. I think this is a really important account. Privative evil does weird things when you line it up next to this procedure of unsaying. But I think that is more an appearance than a kind of, error in the technical part of his theology and philosophy. And here's why. I think unsaying God's goodness, for example, or God's existence is a very different thing from the lack of being that evil has. Um, And that is because it's not an opposition. It's not an oppositional negativity when we're talking about God instead you are suggesting that god is beyond the limitations of all parts of language even as that extends to existence and being which is not to suggest that that is inclusive of evil and this does i mean it gets tricky because evil comes about for all primitive accounts of evil through the act of creation that is ultimately god and so when we get down to Who's at fault for the devil who's at fault for evil as we have so many times on the podcast so far it's easy to point a finger back at god and say well okay maybe technically you did not create evil and evil does not have existence and you created all things that have being fine but aren't you in some sense responsible for getting the ball rolling on all of creation uh for knowing that evil would come about in some way so i think we have a similar Mm -hmm. problem i would not say that his um, solution here is worse than a bunch of the other thinkers that we've had um, and that's because I think um, I, I try to make a distinction between kind of being beyond being versus not having being and that's how I think I can make it work in my brain. What do you think about that?
0: I think only beings can do evil and I think the account of divinity here is that God is is beyond being, like that God's constitutive of being but is not is you know is is on a different level, and like with Proclus, like evil is accidental. It's it's something. It's like a misfire among created things, and so I think that's like one way of sort of walling off the source of divinity and being from the contamination of of uh, contingency and evil and those sorts of things.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I like it. So let's talk about demons. After all, since we love our demons on this podcast. Um, So demons for pseudo Dionysius are fallen angels. Um, He talks much more, as you've pointed out, about angels than about our fallen angels. Um, But again, also, as you've said, there's no heavy reliance on um, a narrative of Lucifer. There's not a heavy reliance on biblical references. There's a kind of description of what I would say is always already happened for him, and no need to go over the details, perhaps because we already know them, or perhaps because the fall of angelic beings, I, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm wondering if he's thinking more neoplatonically um, about beings and their falls, but I don't have a lot of evidence to indicate that. I'm, I'm really guessing at this point. But there is an indication that fallen angels exist but as a group really demons or devils have fall. some of them have fallen he certainly asserts that um how that comes about he's less clear on but because he ascribes to a form of privative evil um, and because goodness has being but evil is the absence of god he's left needing to explain how exactly angels came to fall and how they came to become demons you know so since fallen angels were created beings he argues that they cannot be evil with respect to their being their being is always good good because it has been because it is they are created beings they have that direct line to the creator the one if demons Yeah. Right. So that part is off limits. Their evil must be with respect to something else. So what is that something else? If demons were somehow evil in their being, he argues, and I think this part is really cool, they would self-destruct in a special way. <laughs> um, how would they self-destruct? In two ways. One, their being would self-destruct, but so would the process of self-destruction, which they were carrying out themselves. Uh, and so this would be the what he calls the equivalent of self-destruction, which I kind of love anyway
0: sort of like like they would be they would all be like little black holes or something yeah exactly collapse upon themselves
1: yes um so instead here's some of the language he uses to describe this falling of the angels they have quote put an end to the habit and the activity of divine good things it's a practice that they have quit uh in other words So how exactly does that happen? How is it possible for a being who has created good to fall away from the good? So Vlad argues that angels can't not be given the gift of infinite desire, as we've already discussed. That is constitutive of their creation. But they can fail to act on it. Um, Again, that activity um, is what changes. Fallen angels have the gifts, um, but no longer see them. Um, and the gifts here are generosity, but also uh, the virtues, he explains. Um, They no longer want to see the good. They have suspended that power within them. So this is an act that they do themselves. So they have freedom here, right? That's important. The gift is the very condition for their existence. Nonetheless, they have a weakness, a deviation, an imperfection, a kind of powerlessness. These are all words that he uses. Uh, An abandonment of the capacity they have to be perfect. He's clearly guarding the idea of free will here, though I wouldn't say we get a satisfying account of why they stopped receiving fully the gift of desire they are given. It's more like um, (laughs) trying to deduce what happened than we're being led inside their motivations in in any way. It's sort of like, well, they they stopped the activity and that's how it happens, okay? Through their freedom, we are left to suppose. Yeah,
0: yeah, there isn't like a lot, there's like a formal discussion of, of how this could happen, but there, right. There isn't a, a plot about what actually prompted it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, one of the things that when you're talking about that, that occurs to me is in a lot of the, a lot of the theories of this we've read, like once the, the angels fall, they're locked in. And I wonder if we get that here, Because you have, like you were saying, like they have, they're they're being as constituted by these gifts, but they choose to stop practicing those habits, those virtues. They choose not to see them. They have intellectual power, but they they choose not to want wisdom. Like they can be clever, they can be cunning, but they don't want to bend and discipline their intellects to the good. They exist from goodness, from God's goodness, but in turning away from the gift... I wonder, did they fall away so intensely that they can't turn back to it? Like, is, is, is it, do we have that same sense that like, this is a permanent, that the choice was, the choice is, is once and for all. Or if does Dionysius give us resources for thinking that there could be some sort of return or uh, reconciliation or penance on the part of the demons? What, what do you think?
1: Um, that's an excellent question. I actually see evidence for both arguments. Um, because he uses yeah, I see.
0: that's true so much in pseudo You can see it both ways so many times.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one is using terms like powerlessness feels weird when, at the same time, capacity is given to them for desire. Right, the both are true um, for him, but they're what through. I would suggest, because habit is used for the good, that habit is probably also used for not doing the good, that perhaps through repeated action, uh, repeated choices, that there's a kind of accretion that we see in other thinkers, Augustine, for example, if I'm not mistaken, um, where something can get fixed in a certain sense. But there's also a resource for uh, potential, I would say, for rehabilitation, because he guards their existence so carefully in several spots the created goodness of their being and their continued participation in that being through continuing to desire to live and their limited will that they still exercise, those things connect them forever to their creation. So I would suggest if we're looking more carefully for models of redemption and deification and those other things, that there could be um, a very narrow path Towards salvation for demons, though I do not see any claim that suggests that, because the, he is still firmly claiming that they have become evil, just in a restricted sense of evil. But you know that always leaves the question: Aren't human beings also evil in a restricted sense, and aren't human beings always um, available for salvation in some sense because of their creation through their imago dei? Well, looks like that might be true for angels as well.
0: Right, right, yeah, and, and sort of takes us back to origin and the the potential, like, right, if if evil is a privation, a then like, can't we fill in that gap and and there can be some sort of conversion? Um, and maybe the demons are out there saying, like, you know, you know, uh, we're not coming home. You know, uh, like this is this, it's over. You know, so stop, stop, stop. You know worrying about our, our potential for rehabilitation. Like we're, we're out of there, but you know, and we have to care. We have to care, you know,
1: <laughs> and I want to, um, just be a little bit clearer. The Imago Dei is a particularly human thing, but the analogy I see is to, um, angels creation as good and their limited and even fallen angels participation in the good continued participation through being, um, and living.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So let's think back to some of our friends, um, Klaus before, I do want to talk about wisdom and desire um, in a bit, but right now I want to think back to some of our Neoplatonic friends that we made last time. How does all of this compare to Proclus? Let's just, we've mentioned him already, but can you walk us through some of the differences that we've seen so far with um, pseudo dionysius
0: Yeah, absolutely. So like, yeah, like uh, for Proclus, the, the sort of the gods of classical Greco-Roman civilization are self-constituting and are sort of these key intermediaries between the one and the rest of sort of chaotic creation. I guess for him, it wouldn't be so chaotic. Uh, but they are the, the analogs to the angels in terms of being the helpers of this sort of divine process, but they can't fall. Um, they can't fall because they're self-constituting. They're the source. That means they're the, they're the source of their own goodness and being. Like they are, they're sort of a perfect unit. And so they can't fall away from themselves. Only the beings that are actually properly created later, like further down the line, like human beings, for example, can can fall for the Neoplatonist account that Proclus is offering. So that means that like he has angels, he has demons or daimones, he has like mythological heroes. And for, for Proclus, they can't be evil. You know, like it doesn't matter what they did in the Trojan War or whatever. Like they can't actually be evil, <laughs> evil beings. <laughs> um, so that's that's interesting. And so like you can sort of see how like you would have to have a pretty intense allegorical reading of a lot of the myths and epics to to make that work. But yeah, so like that's one key difference. Like for, for pseudo Dionysius, like anything below God in the hierarchy can fall, and uh, that includes the angels. And I'll I'll talk a little bit about this soon. But like the he's got a pretty intense sense of the power of the upper echelons of the angelic hierarchy. So the idea that like one of these like sort of uh, seraphim or or cherubs falling would be like, I don't know, like almost like an HP Lovecraft, like old God, like cosmic evil thing, event happening. So Hmm. it's, 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 that's a little chilling. Yeah. Okay. So
1: let's talk a little bit about wisdom, intellect, desire, some of these categories as, as they relate to the fall, like what's going on here, particularly with, the angel the angelic fall first and let's talk about wisdom so it seems that they to turn it into a verb they intellect but they choose to not want wisdom is that right klaus Mm -hmm. um yeah that was my understanding okay so they exist they draw their existence from the good and from wisdom itself but in turning away from that gift they fall away is that right? And how does that relate in your mind to, does it, is it concomitant with a change in desire? In other words, do you see a relationship between um, a fall that's grounded in wisdom and a fall that's grounded in desire? What what do you think that relationship might look like?
0: Well, I think uh, the fall grounded in desire like is the most intuitive because you're like, Oh, the bad desire is what shuts down wisdom. Like you can still be like a rational agent in trying to pursue an end, but like the corruption of desire, again, this is, this seems very like, like Augustine, like the corruption of desire, like gives you bad incentives. And so you use your, they're like these sort of super computer level intellects to, to pursue bad ends because they have deleted the files that, contain the, 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 the sort of proper ends. Um, that's, that's how I make sense of it as, as the most intuitive way of understanding the relationship between desire and intellect in the fall of the angels.
1: There's a line that may have just been a throwaway line, but for me kind of stood out as I was trying to determine how those two might be related in his understanding of angelic fall, um, where he says that as the Demons' intelligences fall away from wisdom. Um, they do so because demonic intelligence stupidly has no idea how to obtain what it really wants and indeed does not want it. <laughs> so, mm. this has to do with a kind of weird, oh, kind of weird, I, I would almost say, split subjectivity in the demons who, um, by their very existence, their continuing desire to exist, to live, to breathe, um, they are um, on the one hand, connected to the one, but on the other, they're pursuing other ends. Um, They're choosing not to receive wisdom. They're choosing not to receive goodness and light, and they're looking elsewhere. That involves a misapprehension of what they truly want, and to me it's like knowing what you want is how he sees those two th- not knowing what you truly want um is how he tries to relate those things together um
0: yeah i think that's that's right that and like it's interesting how it is a kind of stupidity on this account and a kind of cognitive failure and of course you're like but why right you know there's always like this, right. this problem of regress of the regression mm-hmm. but uh, like that is that is telling I think that it is it goes back to a Neoplatonic mainstay that you see in Boethius too. There's like even beings classified as evil want the good. They want the thing that they they want goodness is pulling them in a certain direction. And like it might take them over different paths, but they, they they all want everyone wants the same thing. Even the demons. And it's like, well, okay. like That um, it, it seems like extra complicated when we're talking about demons because like we think of demons and it's like, oh, like there's like, you know, like Milton or something. There's a big rebellion and like they don't want to be in harmony with the principle of good. Like they want their own kingdom and they want to mess things up. And it's, it's it seems like pseudo is saying like, oh, you don't even know what you want, which like, psychologically has, like, some, some you know, like, is powerful. Like, that seems, like, true for a lot of people. Like, you're, like, people aren't being honest with themselves with what, what they want. And I think, like, that may be the strength of it.
1: Yeah, that's what I am, was trying to kind of limp my way over to, is that there's something a little bit annoying on the one hand, um, that there's this paternalistic attitude. Oh, you don't know what you really want. Um, but then also, well... How many times have we seen people not know what they really want um, and, and see that confusion of will and understanding together, which is, I think, what that looks like. Anyway, do you want to talk a little bit more about some hierarchies? What do you say, Klaus?
0: For sure. For sure. Um, so again, like, I think it's really interesting that we get the demons in the divine names and then when we turn to one of the other books in uh, the corpus of works that we have from Pseudo Dionysius, the uh, Celestial Hierarchy, there is no real mention of demons explicitly, though I would say that they kind of haunt the, the proceedings of, of that work. Um, but let me get a little bit into it. There's a very regimented hierarchy of the angels, according to uh, Dionysius, at the upper echelon are the seraphim, the cherubim, and the thrones. And they are really, really, really close to the holy of the holies. They contemplate God through a special communion with Jesus and the second person in the Trinity. Uh, quote, by truly coming close to him in a primary participation in the knowledge of the divine lights working out of him. And we have this sense of like the deification of these angels and the unmediated enlightenment that is occurring with them. And I mentioned this before, but sometimes it's not clear what kind of angel Lucifer was in, in these accounts. And, and pseudo Dionysius doesn't bother to get into Lucifer at all, really. But I was wondering, like sometimes there's a tendency to identify Satan as a pretty high ranking angel. And like the idea that Satan would be one of these like, sort of like super powered, like, you know, super angels, basically, uh, with a, with a capacity to stamp his own image on subordinates by arousing and uplifting in them to like a flame. And that's a quotation that, that's how Suddenesius describes what the cherubim and the seraphim do. They they stamp their own image, almost like this strange echo of what the divine word and the Trinity does with human beings in the image of God. Like these, these angels like recapitulate that. And like that would be, a kind of terrifyingly powerful Satan figure, uh, if, if 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 Lucifer fell from this height from these heights. It's not clear from this description of the celestial hierarchy whether what, what motivation Satan would have to fall. So I think again we get back to that point, that problem we were just talking about. Like it seems like the stupidity wouldn't even be possible at this level. Um hmm. so yeah, there's there's that. What do you think? Do you think Satan, if, if, if Satan were to appear in, in any of this, would Satan be a high-ranking or a low-ranking angel, Travis?
1: Um, I think Satan would have to be a high-ranking angel to bring about the kind of powerful disruption that obviously came about through creation. The idea of a kind of demonic image is indeed truly terrifying. Um, But I think the kind of charismatic quality that a Satan figure, a rebellious figure would have to have to bring on kind of hordes of others would require the kind of magnetism that this operation, this power to stamp one's own image implies. Um, It's hard to imagine the universe transforming based on some sort of uh, low ranking administrative demon or angel turning rogue.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there's different, I think there's different accents depending on the source of, of like how high a ranking angel Lucifer was. And we'll we'll see this later in the middle ages uh, in debates between like Thomas and, and uh, Franciscan theologians of like how, how high satan was in the hierarchy but that's interesting that that, that's 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 your take on it even the lower ranking angels are like still very powerful in this and like one piece of evidence is that 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 he vent that he ventures and i found this very strange is what he says about the incarnation um he, he writes that even though jesus is a transcendent cause in as a human being he writes, "I observe that never once did Jesus abandon that human form, and he obediently submitted to the wishes of God the Father as arranged by the angels." So, like Jesus actually adheres to the protocol and hierarchy of the angels. Like it, it's almost as if Jesus is like taking orders from the angels because of the human form, uh, and that reminded me of one of the temptations in the desert from from Matthew, where one of the things that satan tries to get jesus to do is throw himself off a cliff to prove that the angels would come and serve him and like from a pseudo dionysian perspective the fact that jesus doesn't is proof of his adherence to the protocols of the hierarchy which is like really such a strange take from my point of view <laughs>
1: yeah um yeah. maybe not maybe he's i don't know i don't know what do you think no, I do think that's really weird. I think this is very particular to him. He has a very high angelology, I would say.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. He does. I think that's right, and it makes Jesus less anthropocentric. Yes. Like, G- like the Jesus is like benefit. It almost sounds like sometimes like that Jesus is benefiting the angels more than he's benefiting the human beings, and that's that's really strange.
1: I uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, you'll have to convince me of that last that last part, but I will say that any hint of kind of mediation between the will of the, of the father and even an incarnate Jesus is strange (laughs) in Christian theology. Yeah,
0: it is strange. Yeah, it is. I think it's very strange. And uh, the the reason I've said that Jesus seems to benefit the angels more than humans is in uh, chapter 10 of the Ecclesia of the celestial hierarchy he writes that the enlightenment that the angels, the upper level angels get from Jesus is there's like no intermediary. Like there's a kind of more direct access. And this is of course the whole hierarchical image thing um, is that they're closer to God. Like they get more of the power and the light and the illumination of God than human beings do. And like so much of a lot of Christian emphases is on what Jesus does for human beings. And that seems less, I mean, of course he wouldn't deny that Jesus does, you know, does everything for human beings, but like there's an attention to the benefits that other kinds of beings get that human beings don't get, which I find like very striking.
1: Here, I wonder if it would be helpful to look back for where he talks about the triune God, which does come up in certain places, as opposed to the incarnate Jesus so this I would make a son and a Jesus Christ distinction here and assume that mediation like the the unity between the persons of the Trinity would be so strong as to not need to be mentioned in a place like this where he's talking about you know unmediated contact between angels and The One, which is also the Trinity, like I would add a little there, Um, but that could be me just trying to clean him up and make him sound more orthodox than he is, Um, but that would be my suspicion based on how he talks about the Trinity, especially in the divine names.
0: So there's an upper tier that I mentioned of the cherubs and the seraphs and the thrones. There's a middle tier. They are uh, the dominions, powers, and authorities, which is interesting. These are, these are the kinds of uh, angelic powers that get associated with powers of darkness in, in some of the Pauline writings. But he doesn't. He treats them as, as, as angels here. The lower tier are the principalities, archangels, and angels. And and that's that's um, that's what I'm gonna think about a little bit here. And they are the closest to human ecclesiastical hierarchies. Like they, that's the sort of the meeting point is between angels who are like announcers and messengers, and the humans who receive those messages. And sort of you know that's how the light is being transmitted down on through. And you might wonder, like, if that's if that's the way it's supposed to work, then why did we need an incarnation at all. <laughs> if, if, if the system is working the way it's supposed to be working, like through down through the, the light sort of passing through the different mirrors and lenses of the celestial hierarchy, it's down to the, the human hierarchy. Like what was the problem that needed to be corrected?
1: Ooh, ooh, I got one. It has to do with how he imagines the human hierarchy to work. Remembering hierarch is part of that word that um, a church has to exist for mm-hmm. those symbols, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. And so all of that is, is predicated on incarnation, uh, resurrection, yeah. salvation, et cetera.
0: That Jesus needs to find, Jesus needs to like, f- like sort of initiate these practices and institutions for it to be complete. I think that's right. I think that's, that's, that's the solution. But, but because, I, I think yeah, you have a point
1: yeah. that, um, one could easily imagine, um, a kind of evangelical, an angelic hierarchy that bridges the gap between divinity and humanity that wouldn't necessitate um, all of the rest of you know christian soteriology etc it does look suspiciously like you could construct a system that way out of these materials
0: and it really seems like he would be turned off by a kind of modern christocentrism in in modern christianity that's really about like a personal relationship with jesus and stuff no like like, Mm -mm. you know no like (laughs) go to church and like do what the priests tell you. Like <laughs> so sometimes, like what, what you get from this, yeah. um, these these hierarchies. So, in terms of the lower tier of angels, this takes us back to some things we talked about, especially with origin. Every nation has a guiding angel, according to pseudo Dionysius. One example he gives is how Michael, the archangel, is called the ruler of the Jewish people, and the text cites Deuteronomy thirty-two. The actual reference to Michael being like the representative of Israel is from the book of Daniel, where Michael is contending with these other princes of Persia and these other like angels of other angels of, of darkness, it's, it seems to be implied. And so what's interesting is that people like Origen and Justin Martyr and like people we've, we've talked about a long time ago like they'll look at fallen angels as the leaders of these other nations and ex- and like explain that the fallen angels are the ones who are instituting idolatrous practices. And Sudenis doesn't want to touch that. He's like no, people are idolatrous not because the fallen angels are are like have that much power. It's like it's something more about like their own moral responsibility. Like sort of pointing towards the way Paul denounces the nations in Romans one. So it's, it's interesting how he had that opportunity, but didn't take it. So he wants to preserve some
1: human freedom here. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah. 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 And he, he, you know, he rejects, it's also about, it's about human freedom, but it's also about monotheism and monism. He like, you know, he completely rejects the idea that lower gods or demons are in any kind of real war with, With God for control of these nations, Uh. no strange gods were in command here, Um, and it seems like the monothe his sort of monotheism is is also mitigating against a kind of massive spiritual warfare campaign and 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 a a a dualistic view of of history, which I think is interesting. Oh, absolutely, yeah.
1: And how does this relate then to what we've seen before in? Justin Martyr and Paul of elighting, you know, idolatrous deities with fallen angels that demons are actually just, you know, Greek gods. What would you say there?
0: Yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's for me. That's what's, what's interesting is, and maybe he, maybe I'm maybe I'm misunderstanding and he would grant that demons are the inspiration for idolatry, but he would not, what, what he doesn't want to do is to say that, other angel like that even though each nation has its own angel it's not the proper it's not the angels that are proper to those people who are in charge of the idolatry like each each people each person in each nation has an angel and those angels are waiting for you to get back on the right path they're not they're not the ones responsible for idolatry okay and he's a little murky on how the idolatry comes to be and how much of a role the demons play in that i would say here okay so i asked before like which tier you would think satan comes from and you pick the upper tier and for me like i said like there's almost like this uh the old gods of hp lovecraft and like these sort of cosmically terrifyingly powerful beings like if a cherub or a seraph goes wrong on that in that account i think there is also a pretty strong tradition of satan being an archangel which in certain angelologies is pretty high, in certain ones, in, in pseudo Dionysius is like one of the lowest. Yeah, it's pretty low for him. And so I, I wonder like what that does to the figure of the devil if the devil is, if if we postulate that Satan is an archangel, an archangel gone wrong for pseudo if If the devil is from far down the hierarchy, how does that sort of change the story of of the, of evil in, in, uh, sacred history. Like what, like if, what do you think happens if Satan is a lower level civil servant of heaven?
1: Hmm. Yeah. I would say less is disturbed in the fall of a lower ranked angel, um, in terms of the order before the fall and the order after the fall, Um, or maybe, and, and one, effect of that change would be that perhaps the pull would affect the celestial tears less, um, more order might remain after such a rebellion than yeah. otherwise. And so the primary effects of the fall would then be anthropocentric rather than um, a cos- such a cosmic event. Which we would see with the fall of a higher angel. So ultimately, I think that's right. Turning I think that's into right. A, yeah, I think- yeah, ultimately turning this into a more human story than one you know that that has a minor you know celestial component that ends up preserving more human free- freedom and centering the story of Christian soteriology more squarely, I guess.
0: Uh huh. So that's in- so that's interesting. It is a, it is a it the way you read it, it could actually be. A means of recentering the Christ story in when what seems to be a system that maybe that could be could get sidelined a little bit yeah. more readily than it doesn't in, in other in other theologies we've read because it, it is he's using Neoplatism so much that it it can it can sort of throw the plot off a little bit yeah so yeah that, that's sensible yeah yeah I think I, I think I I agree that like if if Satan is further de- is lower down on the tier it does prevent. it it sort of mitigates against dualism in a way that we've seen like, like dualism is a real potential in Christian stories about demons and, and like trying to, trying to trying to deal with the fact that the world is corrupted in, in gospel language. And it seems really, really pessimistic and really all encompassing the way evil has penetrated into the world. This is a way of qualifying that. I think if Satan is further down on the hierarchy.
1: Hmm. So Klaus, I have a question for you. Thinking about the ecclesiastical hierarchy briefly, we've been talking some about how you could construct a pretty non Christocentric uh, theology using some of the materials from this corpus That one, to me, is about the initiation of humanity. I mean, it's about an initiation rite. Um, It's about baptism. It's about um, liturgical life. How could we read that without the underlying, if not often, expressed in terms we're familiar with? This is not Augustine. Um, How would we understand that part of the corpus without understanding undergirding it a very kind of Orthodox understanding of how worship relates and this and the um, what he calls the symbols how those relate to um, to God. in other words there's a heavily heavily ecclesial um, anthropology here the human is constituted by their role in a hierarchy which is, one expressed through worship, the worship of God in Christian forms. Um, So if we're looking for a way where that is integral to the system, I would say that's where we should look.
0: I I agree. And I think that's it makes sense that that seems like the most familiar in terms of the, the appeals to Christ in contrast to the celestial hierarchy that the human way into the hierarchy, I think is grounded in these practices and institutions that depend on Christ, as you pointed out before. So yeah, I think like you look at it, it, you look at the descriptions and the rationales for the sacraments and, and the practices in the ecclesial hierarchy. And it does still seem strange, but like you're seeing Jesus's name on the page a lot more than you had in some of the other, the other parts, I would say.
1: Yeah. Hmm. I think I would need to read this part more carefully, to be honest, to make any grand pronouncements, but um, because I think there's interesting material here that and I'd like to read it more closely alongside some of the the mystical theology in particular and to say how does contemplation work out here how is it reflected in some of these you know the initiation of the monk for example or baptism et cetera? how do we read these things together because i think so often that part of the corpus gets laid aside but i do think it could play um, an interesting role in trying to fill out some of the details of this theology, not so much the demonology, but the theology and the Christology. Well, the, you know, there, we see. there
0: is a demon. I, I did find a reference to demons in the ecclesial hierarchies that I wanted to speak about, because like I was saying like, oh, like Satan's rank is pretty low, potentially, if we if we sort of stick with the archangel ranking for, for Lucifer. Also, there's a way that demons... F- play into the ranks of human beings in the Ecclesiastical hierarchy. So like the the Ecclesiastical hierarchy, you have the hierarch or or bishop at the top, then priests, then deacons, then monks, then like the laity, like people who are confirmed and baptized but are not like clerics or monks. Then you have catechumens, people who are working up to that, penitents, people who are like dealing with sinfulness and repenting to try to get back into the fold of the laity. And then you have like the demon possessed masses <laughs> and you you have people who like people who are not part of the Christian community as, as like consumed by demons. And this is sort of casually referenced in the ecclesiastical hierarchies, but it is suggestive that like, even though there isn't a ton of ink spilled in this about demons, it's like, Oh well, yeah. Like, well everyone else is just possessed by a demon. <laughs> and it's like, Oh wait, tell me more about that. And I wanted to sort of, Give it, give, give it, he's, he, I wanted to share the places where he goes into this because in his description and his contemplation on what we would call the Eucharist, he's talking about how like people who like penitents and catechumens and the demon possessed need to be cleared away from the altar. Uh, he writes the, the sacred act after all is not of this world. It even keeps up the penitents who previously were present. It grants entry only to the sacred it is in its perfect purity. It says I'm invisible to, And I do not commune with those prevented by an imperfection of some kind from reaching the highest point of conformity with God. And so like, there's like this sense that like the, the the sort of the sinful masses, the damned, the demons, they need to be like the people consumed by demons need to be cleared out of this, of these church spaces. So these rituals can, can take place. So it's, it's about safeguarding purity. And Dionysius writes, the mass of possessed is itself profane, but is next in place above the catechumens who are the lowest. Again, just obsessed with hierarchy, just obsessed with categorizing, categorizing who's less pure than someone else. In my view, there is no equality of status between someone who has received no initiation nor taken part in the divine sacraments and someone who has taken part in some of the sacred rites, but is now held fast by opposing charms or by confusion. Such people are quite rightly forbidden to see the most sacred things and enter into communion with them. Hence, I believe, or rather, I know for a fact, that the members of the hierarchy, being very wise in their judgment, understand that the possessed, that is, those who have turned away from a life conforming to divine example, and have adopted themselves the ideas and character of abominable demons, are exposed to the very worst power. In their extreme folly, so destructive to themselves, they turn away from the truly real, from immortal passions, or I'm sorry, from immortal possessions and from everlasting bliss, they long for and work for the change and for the, which the multiple passions, characteristic of matter, of matter, for pleasures which die and corrupt, for the instability of things and for the appearance of happiness. The deacon charged with dividing the people separates them first and foremost, for it is wrong for them to be present at any part of the rite, other than the scriptural teaching aimed at their return to better things. Uh, so yeah, just like as we're talking about like the, the practice of the priests and, and the deacons and such, cl- like, it's assumed that people who are possessed by demons will be in attendance. And it's, it's commanded that those people be sort of segregated off and pushed out when the most sacred moments of Christian worship are taking place. And I, I, I found that striking, that it's sort of as a matter of course, the demonic will be present for Christian worship. And it's like it's a problem that needs to be addressed, and it, it requires a certain kind of discipline and discernment amongst uh, the clarity to 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 keep things pure and keep things on on the right track. And the question that the question that came to me about this was like, we think of God's procession through all of creation and return that everything is kind of unified in its goodness through contact with 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 God, and. I wonder about like whether this strains against the, the, the intimacy with God that seems to be possible in this way of thinking about creation, um, whether like, or, or whether it's actually in accord with it. I, I'm not sure.
1: That's an excellent set of questions. Um, I wanna point out a few things. One, the <laughs> high regard for ritual, but on the one hand, but on the other um the tenuous nature of those rituals to be corrupted by influences that are quotidian and profuse in regular human beings it's so easy to taint what's going on um or there's some danger there it's not clear that it would render the ritual not non efficacious i'm not saying suggesting that but there's cons like lots right, of concern that right. it would be disrespectful in some sense minimally um definitely to let a mixing happen there consistent with yeah his obsession with hierarchy sure absolutely um but i would say that we see this in another place um in the same work and that is at the moment of uh, baptism when the catechumen is stripped um naked the very next thing that happens is the uh is the abjuration of the devil. Um, and that goes a little something like this. <laughs> um, he unties the man's sandals and has the deacons remove his garments. Then he puts him facing westward with his hands outstretched in a gesture of abhorrence. Three times he bids him breathe his rejection of Satan and his abjuration of him. Three times he speaks the word, the words and the other repeats them. Then he turns him eastward, uh, towards Jerusalem and God and everything, with eyes raised and hands lifted to heaven, and commands him to submit to Christ and to all divinely granted sacred lore. <laughs> sacred lore, amazing translation. Um, mm-hmm. But this is a very ancient practice and survives into modern um, Catholic and you know, fun fact, episcopal rites of baptism. The uh, one has to reject Satan um, and deny. Yeah. And, and yeah. swear yeah. that you will no longer, you will turn from from Satan and all, you know, all of the devilish ways that exist.
0: Michael Francis Ritchie, do you renounce Satan?
1: I do renounce. Him. So that survival has always has made me very curious about these early centuries of Christianity and their assumptions about the ubiquity of demonic activity in the world and what we might loosely call possession. Was there already in this like fifth, sixth century in these communities, was there already an understanding that these? there's a difference between kind of acute possession and the more generalized, well, everyone is affected by demons? I used to think that that was a pretty early distinction, but listening to that really intense description that you just went through, I, I start to have my doubts. <laughs> I mean, the yeah, masses are yeah. bad. <laughs> they are really bad. I think he leaves room, I don't want to weigh in too hard on the the relationship between human, human freedom and the direction of demons, but demons and evil, however they are, you know, and human, e- evil by choice, however they are related, are so... Present here for him, that that rite must include this. It's at a hugely important moment. Um, and yeah, uh, opens up a whole realm of other questions um, about how human soteriology works, how the sacraments work, how all this relates to, you know, all these heavenly things we've been talking about, contemplation as well. Um, yeah. It it all seems like you got to get into the inner sanctum before you have access to so much of this uh, salvific stuff, this connection to the divine, which seems really odd when we compare it to, say, the creation of angels. as good. They always retain some goodness, um, and I would, I would be surprised if he doesn't elsewhere imply that human beings retain some goodness. Uh, it would be hard for him to reject the imago dei if pressed, but. <laughs> It's because it is so biblical and he's so biblical and, and, um, but this raises some important questions about how all of this fits together. Anthropology, soteriology, et cetera.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting. Just like, it's sort of like casual, the sort of the demonic possession is sort of casually referred to in in, in, in certain spaces. And it's like, sort of taken for granted that like if you're not practicing and you're not initiated, then you are, under the thrall of these demonic forces. And so, like, that's, it's interesting how, like, that's always sort of in the background and it only becomes explicit in a few moments. And for me, that's, like, kind of a metaphor for the entire diabology, demonology thing in the history of Christianity is that, like, even when it's not necessarily being commented on, it's, like, sort of performing invisible and silent functions in in the whole thing. Yeah. And so that's that's Mm. sort of what I take away from it.
1: Wow, loving that, loving that so much. Wow, well that was a rather deeper dive than I think I even imagined for our conversation. Um, This is one of my favorite texts from this period of Christianity. So thank you all for joining us on this deep dive into this amazing and mysterious author. I hope you enjoy the connections from our fun friends, the Neoplatonists, and that you look forward to next time when we will talk about something even more tantalizing, which I will not even tell you about because, of course, it's a secret. It's a mystery. So with that, thanks for listening. See you next time. P.S. I wanted to mention I'm reading this amazing new novel by Colleen Hubbard called Housebreaking, and it has nothing to do with the devil, but for those of you who are readers, I thought you might be interested in checking it out. Following a long-standing feud and looking to settle the score, a woman decides to dismantle her home alone and by hand and move it across a frozen pond during a harsh New England winter in this mesmerizing debut. It is an amazing book so far. I'm not even done with it, but I hope that all of you pick up a copy. If you get a chance, again, it's Colleen Hubbard's Housebreaking, and uh, tweet us and let us know what you think of it. The end.
0: This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Ward, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners
1: like you. Thank you.